When we open this book, we have you open this book for a reason. And the reason we use this book, not only is it God's word, but this book is real. It's the truth. When I say it's real, it is true to life. It accurately represents what goes on and how God enters into the difficulties in life. This is not a precious moments book, you know, where you have a nice little lamb, a little boy, shepherd with a light blue shepherd's hat is stroking a nice white fuzzy lamb and life's all great. It's not a, uh, you know, a Winnie the Pooh book where poor old piglet, life's tough. You know, this is a real story where there is tough times, there's joy, there's tears, there's sorrow, a lot of sorrow. We have been studying through the book of Genesis, and we've come across a man by the name of Abraham. And Abraham, which we said a while ago, is he gives us a model of living by faith. He's a man of faith. Abraham is not a hero. And by hero, he's not somebody that's above us, who is just way beyond our grasp. Abraham's a human being. And as a human being, he's complex. His story's complex. His wife and his relationship isn't sometimes the best. And so they both also have ups and downs, victories, tragedies. They walk up on hills and sometimes they're in deep valleys. And much of their life is ruled by fear. Today we're going to find that out because when you let fear enter your life, it causes you to have a lack of faith in God. And when you have a lack of faith in God, often you'll make decisions that aren't the decisions that he would make because you're scared, you're fearful. And sometimes because of those decisions, we enter dark times in life. We hurt ourselves, we hurt others. And uh, there's a lot of what I would say just casualties along the way. And today we're going to read about one. Her name is Hagar. Hagar's story is found in chapter 16. In chapter 15, in 15 verse 6, it's the high point of Abraham's life. He believes God's promise and it says it's counted to him as righteousness. Another way to say that in modern vernacular or biblical vernacular is he was saved. God imputed on him, gave to him righteousness. That means he's got a passport sealed in heaven with his name on it. Abraham arrived. But because you are a Christian, because you're a child of God, don't forget you're not in heaven yet. And because you're not in heaven yet, there will still be a lot of difficult times in your life. Jared talked about that when he opened up. He asked the question, hey, once you're a Christian, is everything great? No, in this world, you're going to have trouble. Sorrow and pain remain, but along with that, so does God's presence. And that's what we're going to learn about today. And we're going to learn about not as only his presence there, but he sees what you're going through. He knows. He knows you more than anybody. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a quick walk through chapter 16. A quick walk. Because after that, I'm going to have a man come up and share his testimony about the valley. And how God met him in the valley. And how the valley, a lot of times, is not done. Here's how Genesis 16 starts. Now Sarai, or Sarah... Abram, 
Abram's wife had borne him no children. If you stop on that and let it sink in, you might pass by. This is a big issue. Sarah is almost 100 years old. God promised her husband that he's going to have a descendant that is going to have descendants that are more than the stars and the sky and the sands and the sea. But Sarah is old and she has not born any kids. How is that promise going to come true? And so right away there's this problem that humanly speaking, they got to do something about it. And so she comes up with a solution. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. So if you remember, Abraham went to Egypt. He told Pharaoh that Sarah was his sister. So Pharaoh married her. Pharaoh gets a disease and says, wait, wait a minute, God's cursing me because you lied. Here, take everything, take all the gold, take all the livestock here and take some servants with you and get out of here. And I guarantee you, Hagar was one of those servants. So verse 2. Sarah said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. And she's blaming God. He's not letting me get pregnant. So here's what I want you to do. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abraham listened to the voice, not of God, but his wife. So this is a story often churches, I, I don't, I wouldn't put this story in here. It's a bad story. But here's the story. Sarah tells her husband, sleep with Hagar, get her pregnant. That's a bad story. I thought Abraham was a hero. This is a low, low time. Not only that, it says Abram listened to whose voice? The voice of his wife. I can if you're a husband, you understand this. I'll be honest with you. Imagine if you just handed your wife over to Pharaoh and then she finally gets out of there. Your relationship's probably not doing too well. She's probably looking at you like, how could you do that? Okay, honey, I, I won't. Whatever you say, whatever you say, and you almost say, oh, I don't want to hurt my wife anymore, so I'll just be passive and I'm not going to say nothing. That's what's happening. Abraham, listen to the wife of Sarah. Okay, whatever you want. Verse 3. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. Basically as kind of like a concubine so she could get pregnant and the promise will come true now, see? Verse 4, and he went into Hagar and she conceived. So she got pregnant right away. I shouldn't say it, but she's fertile myrtle, is what I've heard said before. I've heard women say that, so I say that. I've heard women say it when they want to, you know, doggone it, lady has too many kids. Anyhow. So he went into Hagar, she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress, meaning... Hagar is able to get pregnant, and Sarah can't, and Hagar looks with contempt, meaning, ha-ha, see, I can get pregnant, so she's looking, really kind of rubbing it in on poor Sarah. And so verse 5, Sarah said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. So she's blaming Abram for this, bro. It's your fault, buddy. And I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me, Abram. Doggone it, you're always making life hard for me, Abram. Verse 6, but Abram said to Sarah, Behold, 
Your servants in your power, do with her as you please. Whatever you want, honey. Just whatever you want. So you know what Sarah did? She dealt harshly with her. She's mean. And so Hagar, who's pregnant, left. She fled. Where do you flee, flee to? This is, this is the arid desert area in Palestine. She was out in the desert alone. 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 Pregnant and alone. With a lady who's kind of views you as your slave. And she's, she fled. So in verse 7... Says the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. One, I just want to make one thing, I'm not going to go deep into this, but the angel of the Lord is a very interesting phrase. The angel of the Lord is an angel and probably a a body form that she sees and is talking to. But then in verse 13, look at what she says about the, the angel of the Lord. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God of seeing. So the angel of the Lord, she calls God. What is going on? Theologians would call this the pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Some people believe this is Jesus. It's called a theophany. Christophany. Jesus Christ appears to her in the desert. And the angel of the Lord said in verse 10, don't worry, I'll take care of you. I will surely multiply your offspring so that they can be numbered for a multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. I'm not going to go into this, but Ishmael is the, what's called the father of the Islamic faith. It's interesting what they say about Ishmael in verse 12. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinmen, saying Ishmael's going to be a warrior, and he's always going to be mad at everybody. You can interpolate what you want out of that. I'm not going to go into that right now, because we have deeper issues, which is verse 13. Here's Hagar, pregnant, alone, in the desert, the angel of the Lord shows up, and she says, she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are the God of seeing. For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me, for he is the God who sees me. He sees me. So the point of the story is pretty simple. A lot of people sinned. A lot of damage was done. Some of it was personal sin. Some of it wasn't even their, her fault. This world is broken. Sometimes we sin and make mistakes. Sometimes we don't, we still suffer. Sometimes we feel alone. But there is a God who sees. I'm going to call up Dave Ingalls, who is the coach of Kent City High School basketball, and he has his story to tell about the God who sees. I would, if you can, if you could give him a hand and thank him because it's not easy to do. And also, just one more thing. Um, you can blame me for his pants. I told him to wear them. All right, so.
a couple things before I get started. Um, I brought my phone up not to text or take phone calls, but because I was raised in a Baptist church, my dad is a pastor, and I know how important it is to get out at noon, and we don't go past that. So I'm going to make sure I stay on time. Um, I want you to know that um, I've, back in high school, I played in a lot of big games in basketball, and then um, I've now coached, I'm in my 24th year of coaching, and I've coached in a lot of big games. And I've never been more nervous than I am right now. Well, this is way out of my comfort zone. Um, but I don't think that you can get better if you stay where you're comfortable. When I'm coaching, I try and get that across my players and put them in situations where they're uncomfortable so they can improve and get better, and that's what I'm trying to do. Uh, I don't enjoy talking about it. Um, but everywhere I go, I speak at high schools and middle schools, uh, and I've talked uh, to some collegiate uh, athletic teams, and I just want to reach one person everywhere I talk. That's all I want. You'll have to bear with me. I'll stumble. I'll fumble my way through this. But I will. I will get through. Um, when, you're, uh, when you're coaching at the varsity level, uh, you're in the spotlight. It's not a bright one, but it's enough that people know who you are. Uh, you're, they'll see your name in the paper and some quotes you said. Uh, and you'll, you'll be on TV sometimes. Um, I don't mind the articles and the online and stuff, but for TV, I mean, if you look at me, face for radio is what I say. Um, so I don't enjoy the TV a whole lot. Um, but people know who you are. Um, I know he mentioned the, uh, the pants. It's kind of a thing that's come around the last three years is I wear bright colored pants when I coach. And um, the pastor's the only one that's picked up on it. When we were talking before I came, here is why I do it. Um, it's more to deflect. Because when people see the bright pants, it makes them smile. And then we can talk about it, and it's all good. And that's what I want everybody to see is just at a distance. It all, it's all good. In my coaching, um, we've had conference titles and district titles. And in 2012, I was fortunate enough to have a team that I was coaching. Uh, we made it all the way to the Breslin Center to the, the state semifinals. Uh, and that was a goal of mine ever since I could, I could walk, was to get there. And I never got there as a player, but to do it as a coach was amazing. And then we come to uh, Kent City, and I'm just finishing up my fourth year. And we've won a couple conference titles. And this last year, uh, we went 20-0, first time in school history. And it was, it was great, an incredible experience. Um, and I'm not saying all this to brag because there's nothing to brag about. Um, it's nothing I did. It's the kids. But the reason I'm saying it is because when people see that and they see the successes that I've been fortunate enough to have, everyone thinks everything's fantastic. Man, look at him. He's done this and he's doing this and now they're 20 and 0 and everything is so good. Um, after that 20th game last year, I had a very good friend of mine that works for uh, something called MLive.com where they cover high school sports and he said, I would like to do a, a story on you on your coaching journey. And I agreed as long as it was going to be just my coaching journey. Um, so we sat down and talked and we covered it and he got to the point where he said, do you work in the school? Because he knew in my past I was the athletic director 
I was the dean of students, and I was coaching at the previous school I was at. And I told him, I said, unfortunately, I can no longer work full time. I can only be on my feet about five or six hours at a time, and then I have to medicate and lay down or recline because um, my back is so bad. And I just sat there and paused for a second, and he's trying to figure out where he's going to go with the next question. And all these thoughts started rushing into my head, and I decided that it's now or never. I've got the platform. If I'm ever going to tell people what I'm going through, now's the time. And so uh, I took him on an hour, hour and a half journey of what I was going through. In the fall of 2017, I was I was literally seconds away from taking my own life. It all goes back to uh, in 2010 I had back surgery. I've had problems with my back for a long time, since middle school, and it culminated with a surgery in 2010, and that was the beginning of my depression. My depression came at me in stages. Uh, there were three stages when I was going through depression. Uh, the first stage um, was I started just feeling different. I didn't know what it was. Uh, I just knew that maybe a sickness was coming on. Um, I wasn't real concerned, but then it led into the fact that I couldn't eat. Um, and when I say I couldn't eat, I would get one meal every three days or so. I went from 180 pounds down to 150 in about a month. And it got to the point when I would eat, it didn't want to stay down. And so now I'm worried. Something's wrong. I know something's wrong. Um, so we go and the doctors are rushing me into all these different uh, tests and exams that normally you have to schedule months out and they're getting me in right away. And so my mind's just going crazy. Um, so we go through all the tests and I remember sitting in the doctor's office and he comes in and he goes, hey, you can relax. We go, all the tests are negative. And so I'm like, man, that's great. He goes, oh, I need to talk to you. He goes, I've looked at um, your background with your surgery and where you are now. And he goes, I really think that you um, might have some depression. And to me, when someone said depression, I thought, oh, you're sad. We'll cheer you up. We'll go out and we'll do something. I'll tell a joke and we'll make you laugh. That's what I thought depression was. And so when he told me that, I wasn't feeling sad at the time. And so I just blew it off. Okay, doctor, I appreciate all the help. I'm glad that none of this is a problem. He got me on some, a program where I could start gaining my weight back, and, and I moved on, and that was my first stage. Uh, but I didn't do anything about it. My second stage um, was uh, things started to get quite a bit worse. Um, I just, I'd lose all my energy, and it's hard to explain as a coach because you're on the floor and you're running around, and I used to be so active and play. I got to play college ball and, and all this. To get to the point where there were times where I would be at home, or even if I, was, I worked part-time at the golf course, where I physically and mentally could not take one more step.
I said, it's, it's hard to explain. I, I, I still have trouble. I don't know how that happens, but I, I would just, I remember I was at the golf course one morning by myself, and luckily there was no one there, and I just sat down where I was at. I, I was on a step. I just sat down on the step, trying to figure out how I was going to get through uh, the rest of that morning. Along with the loss of energy uh, came isolation. I started isolating myself. I couldn't work anymore. I could only make feet five or six hours at a time, so I spent a lot of time at home by myself. And when I'm talking isolation, uh, it got to the point, I remember this uh, quite well, uh, my wife came home, and I was on the couch, or I was thinking it was in the recliner, and I had my hoodie on with it pulled over my head, and there's no lights on, no TV on. The curtains are drawn, and I'm just sitting there. And uh, she comes in and goes, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm just, just resting. And she, and she goes, well, what time did you get here? And I believe I had a doctor's appointment that morning, so I'd gotten home about noon. And I said, well, I got home at noon. And she says, it's 6 o'clock. So for six hours, I had just been sitting there. No lights, no sound, nothing. Um... You can't explain how alone you feel. You can't, at least I couldn't possibly believe anyone else would be going through what I was going through. Because if they were, they'd say something because you can't do that. And so I wasn't going to say anything. I was going to keep battling alone because I didn't want to be the weird one and the only one out there going through it. But at this point, I know... I've got depression. I remember what the doctor told me. I know I've got it, but I'm still too prideful, I guess is the way to say, and I'm going to handle it myself. I can get through this. I got this. As an athlete, you learn, you play through the pain, and you get through it, and that's what I was doing. And all it did is lead me down a slipperier slope into the third and final stage. In that third stage, you're still experiencing all the other um, symptoms I had. But now, the uh, negative self-image comes in. I can't work anymore. Um, as an athletic director and dean of students and then some coaching on top of that, um, that's a pretty good income. And I've lost all that. I don't have an income anymore. So that right there is bad enough. But when you put on top of it that I'm not bringing in income, but I'm bringing in bills, doctor bills, uh, for physical therapy and for medicines and everything else, I'm beyond, I'm, I'm a liability now. And that's how I viewed myself. Um, it's coming into the springtime, and I've seen some posts on, on social media uh, and it's a pretty exciting time where you have the daddy-daughter dances. And it, it's not a huge thing, um, but it was to me. And I can remember that we were at the daddy-daughter dance with my daughter. And it was fantastic. You get your picture taken, and you're all dressed up. 
and she's still excited because you're there, and she's running around with her friends. And so you go, after the pictures, you go in and you uh, get in the gymnasium and the music's playing. And she joins her friends and they're running around and, and doing what they do. And it, it just, I sit back there and smile. And then the, the first slow song comes on. And when the slow song comes on, all the girls would run to their dad. And they would jump into their arms. And the dad would swing them around. Because that's what you do when you're a dad. And I couldn't do it. Because I can't pick her up anymore. And she handled it beautifully. She's like, Dad, it's okay. And she just went about what she was doing but it wasn't okay. And so when that happened, my self-image was gone. No income, bills, and now I can't even pick up my daughter. I had never been so miserable. So there we are in the fall of 2017, and I texted my wife that um, I was going to go hunting because I like to hunt. She was at work, and we live over here in Ravana, and I hunt over by Greenville. And I packed all my stuff. I knew I was uh, my plan was to go hunting, but in that 45-minute drive, I had devised the plan, and I was going to make it look like an accident because I still didn't want anybody to know. I can remember I'm sitting in the car and uh, my, the, my phone was on the passenger seat and when I would isolate, I would just put it on silent because I wasn't going to answer it anyways. So it's usually on silent and it's in the other seat. I remember turning the car off and putting the, uh, the key in the cup holder and I went to reach for the door to go and for some reason, I'd forgotten to put my phone on silent. And I had a buddy call me that I hadn't talked to in about three months. And he was just calling to see how I was doing. And it scared me because my phone was always on silent. And it wasn't. So it startled me and it woke me up. And I answered the phone. And we talked for about 15 minutes. And I didn't tell him what was going on. But it snapped me out of it. And I talked to him. And I was able to drive home. So that phone call to him was nothing. To me, it was everything. It was a short time later, um, maybe a week or two, and I was going down that same path. Um, when, when the thoughts start coming, it, it, you can see them, but there's nothing you can do about it when you're in the state where I was in. Uh, I say it's like you're in the ocean and you're swimming, and I'm not a good swimmer in the first place, and you can see the waves coming, and they're big, and they're going to hit you, but there's nothing you can do about it. So that's what I was going through, and I was just driving in the car, and I was in Kent City, and I was by the old church offices by the high school, and I don't know how I got it, I can't remember, but I had uh, Pastor Vander West's cell number, 
And I just texted him. I said, I'm I hear, I, I need to see you uh, if you got a minute. And he replied right away. And he goes, you know what? I have a meeting I have to get to, but I got a couple minutes if you can hurry up. And I was like, I'm here. I'm already here. So I gained my composure because I had to get out of my car and walk in public. So I got to put my smile on again. And I walk in and I ask and they point me to his office. And... Um, he goes, I really, I really apologize. He goes, normally it's not an issue, but I'm running this meeting in Grand Rapids. I'm in charge. And he had a stack of papers and books. And he goes, so I only got a minute, but what do you need? And so I'm thinking, man, I'm so close to telling someone what's going on. But he's only got a minute, and I don't know if I want to put this on him now when he has to get to a meeting that he's running. So I stood there for a second, and I just... I said, forget it, I'm doing it. And I just started telling him what's going on. Um, I think that at that moment, he probably realized he shouldn't give me his cell number. Um, <laughs> and if he could take it back, he probably would. But um, what he did is he listened. And it's the first person I told everything. And... Uh, he put me in touch with a counselor who was, I can't say enough about the counselor, but he also pointed me, he said, look, you need to start reading Psalms. He goes, there's so much stuff in there that can, that can maybe help you out. And so I started reading. And uh, I got to Psalms 25 and verse 15 to 18. And Going through this, my wife knew I had depression. I mean, you can't hide it that well. Um, but she didn't know how bad it was, and I wasn't going to tell her. And one was because I don't want to put more on her plate. I mean, she's already now the breadwinner, and I can't do anything, so why add to her burdens? But also, I can't put into words what I'm going through. I can't, it's so hard for me to explain what's going on. I, couldn't, I just couldn't put it in words. And so I'm reading Psalms 25. Um, I'd like to start with verse 16. It says, Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am alone and afflicted. The distresses of my heart increase. Bring me out of my sufferings. Consider my affliction and trouble and take away all my sins. And I, I stopped. I said, wait a second in those verses was everything I was going through. It said, I'm alone, which is a major thing. I'm afflicted. I've got distresses. I'm suffering. I've got pain. And it was right there. And I couldn't say it, but it was right there. And then I go back to verse 15. And it says that my foot is caught in a net. And that was perfect. I don't know if you've ever had struggled uh, trying to get a knot out of a net or if you got caught in a net. The more you fight it, the tighter it gets, and you can't get out. You, got it. you need help. You can't do it by yourself. And that's what I was going through. I'm trying to get through this by myself, and I'm struggling, and I'm fighting. And it kept getting worse. And then you read the beginning of verse 15. 
And it says, My eyes are always on the Lord, for he will pull my feet out of the net. And I think that's all he wanted. Stop fighting it. Stop doing it by yourself. You just got to look to him. My eyes are always on the Lord. He'll pull my feet out of the net. And I couldn't believe it. And that passage started me to where I could start getting some help. I, uh, I want to close with um, a song. I promise I won't sing it. You, you don't want to hear that. Because <laughs> um, some of you may like the song, and if I sang it, you wouldn't like it anymore. And so, <laughs> but what I'd like to do is I'd like to read the, the chorus to you, if I could. Um, it's an older song, and it's by Mercy Me. And it goes... Please do not let go. I promise there is hope. Hold fast. Help is on the way. Hold fast. He's come to save the day. What I've learned in my life, one thing greater than my strife, is your grasp. So hold fast. You just got to hold on and you got to look to him. Like I said, I think that's all he wanted. He wanted me to stop fighting it by myself. And uh, he sees what you're going through. I tried to hide. I turned turn the lights off. I closed the blinds. I put the hood over my head. I tried to hide. It didn't work. <laughs> but since I read those verses, he sees me, and he's been able to help me. I guess that's all I've got. I, I appreciate them letting me share my story, and I hope someone hears what they needed. I, uh, I can't say enough for the people here, the people in this community, what they've meant to me, the support they've given me, in just the direction they point in my life. So, thank you.